I gotta warn you, I've got no cheesy illustrations today, no corny jokes. We're gonna go straight into it. Are you ready for it? All right. How many of you like the cheesy jokes and corny illustrations? I'm sorry. There's none today. None. Friends, we are at a unique uh, spot in the book of Romans. We've been uh, going through this book for who knows how long. It's been about a year and a half, and uh, I think. And uh, it's, uh, it's been such a joy, I tell you. It's been such a joy for me uh, to walk through this book personally, and I hope it's been the same for you. We're, we're in a, a particular spot in Romans, uh, a series that spans chapters 9, 10, and 11, and we're titling this series, God's Plan for Israel. God's plan for Israel. And we've gone through some five parts already, and today we're at part six in our series of God's plan for Israel. Part six is entitled, Is Confession Required for Salvation? Is Confession Required for Salvation? Romans 10. Would you please stand with me as we read Romans 10, verses 8 to, 19, 8 to 13? Romans 10, verse 8 to 13. And here we have the Apostle Paul writing. And he writes this in verse 8. He says, But what does it say? The Word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the Word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Father, bless us as we go through this passage. Lord, it's a difficult one. Uh, it's one in which Christians over the centuries have interpreted differently, approached differently, defined terms differently. Lord, we need Your Spirit to guide us. We need Your Spirit to open our eyes, to enlighten us, to show us Your truth. Help us, Father, to learn from this precious, this famous text. Help us to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Verse 8, Paul writes, for, but what does it say? The Word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the Word of faith which we preach. What's he talking about here? The Word, or the message of faith, is near us. That is to say, Paul's gospel message is close by. It is readily accessible. It is not distant. It is not mysterious. It is not confusing. It is not difficult to comprehend. The word of faith, or in verse 6, it's referred to as the righteousness of faith, it is right before us. It's right at the gate. As close to us as is our mouth and as is our heart. And what is this word of faith? What is this message? What is this gospel that Paul is proclaiming? The content of the message is found in verses 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus 
and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10, 9 and 10 is Paul's message. It's Paul's Gospel. It is his message particularly to the Jews, as we shall see in just a few moments. We'll say more about this shortly. Of course, Paul's words also apply to Christians. And they beg one all-important question, the question which is the title of this message. Is confession required for salvation? Is confession required for salvation? I'll, uh, I'll spare us the suspense. Absolutely. Absolutely. Confession is required for salvation. You know how I know that? Because I can read. Take a look. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and he goes on to add a second condition, believing in the heart, you will be saved. Confession, a requirement for salvation. Then the second part in verse 10, with the mouth, confession is made. And what happens after confession is made? Salvation happens. Quite simply, friends, the answer to the question, is confession required for salvation, is yes. Absolutely it is. Of course, the real issue behind this question is how we define the terms. How do we define words like confession? How do we define the term salvation? And believe me when I say there is no small consensus as to how these words should be defined. I want to look today at four common, but, I, but I'm going to argue inadequate, interpretations of Romans 10, 9, and 10, and then we'll get to a more proper interpretation. But first, four common interpretations of Romans 10, 9, and 10. First, number one, confession is a public declaration of one's faith in Christ. Some say we must believe in Christ and confess Him publicly in order to be justified. Now, I think the, the first part of this interpretation is very, very good. The, the verb in Greek, the, the Greek verb for confess, homologeo, is quite frankly verbal confession. It means to say plainly. It means to publicly declare. That is the most straightforward rendering of that verb. And so, Paul... Uh, goes on to say that here that confession is done, it's done with the mouth. With the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So we are on safe grounds to call confession a public declaration of some kind. But where this interpretation goes awry is in its insistence that publicly confessing Christ is necessary for justification. You see, if that were true, if that were true, that public confession is required for justification, then it would be the only time Paul says so. Nowhere else in all 13 of Paul's letters to the Romans, to the Corinthians, to the Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the list goes on and on. Nowhere else in all 13 of Paul's letters does he make public confession a requirement for justification. 
Neither is the idea of public confession found in the Gospel of John. Um, a Gospel we know well, uh, which says in, in, in John 20, 30, and 31, that this Gospel was written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in His name. The whole Gospel of John was written that we might be justified. And yet nowhere, nowhere in John is there a mention of public confession of Christ as a condition for justification. Jody Dillo writes, if we must confess Jesus as Lord in order to be saved or justified, then a man could not be saved by reading John's Gospel. That's a striking statement. St. Hodges writes, Romans 10, 9, and 10 has been used by many to present confession as a coordinate condition with faith for obtaining eternal life. But if that were the intent of Paul's declaration, it would stand absolutely alone on the pages of the New Testament. Friends, realize this. If we are to suppose, as this first view supposes, and many Christians suppose, that public confession of Christ is a requirement to get into heaven, then Romans 10, 9, and 10 would be the only place in the New Testament where that condition occurs. That's a striking reality. And one that should lead us away, not toward that view of Romans 10, 9, and 10. How about a second interpretation of these verses? Number two. Let's say confession is inevitable external evidence of true inward faith. We must believe in Jesus to be justified. And real faith will automatically manifest or confess itself outwardly. Now, this interpretation is flawed on a couple of, of, of reasons. Number one, it really blurs the line on what confession is. Again, a plain and straightforward meaning of the verb homologeo in Greek is to say or declare with the mouth. And here, this view thinks that uh, th those who hold this view argue that no, it's just any evidence, any physical evidence. So it seems to mitigate the meaning of the, the word confess. But secondly, and perhaps more strikingly, this interpretation actually rearranges Paul's words. This interpretation that... Uh, that real faith will automatically manifest itself outwardly or, or uh, publicly, this interpretation actually reverses what Paul says. Notice what Moody Bible scholar uh, John Hart writes. He says, This exegesis subtly reverses the text to say, If you are saved, you will confess that Jesus is Lord. But Paul declares, If you confess that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Do you see... The subtle difference? It's no small difference. <laughs> Those who hold position two here, that, that real faith always confesses, well, that reverses precisely what Paul has just said. No, you need to confess first and then you'll be saved. Interesting. This view also just doesn't quite hold water. How about a third view? Confession is a total inward surrender to Christ. We must believe in Jesus and wholly submit to Him in order to be justified. Here again, this interpretation relies heavily on, on understanding the word confession in a very, uh, uh, very metaphorical sense, one that's very foreign to the New Testament. Verbal confession is just that. It's verbal confession. And even if it, um, 
uh, uh, excuse me, and, and, and submitting or surrendering to Christ is never given in the New Testament, in all the Scriptures, as a condition for justification. The Bible repeatedly teaches us that faith is the condition for justification. So again, this view we cast aside. How about a fourth view? Confession, this is a popular one. Confession is synonymous with belief. We must believe or confess Jesus in order to be justified. Now, you might be seeing some similarities between all four of these, but I assure you there, there are some differences here. If we suppose, as many do, that Paul's just saying the same thing here. He's just two sides of the same coin. Um, then we're going to have trouble when we come to different portions of the Word of God. I gave you some questions uh, about this message a couple weeks back as we were preparing for it. And I sent home one text, John 12:42 and 43. How many uh, read that text by chance? I'm curious. I know, uh, Mike, you did and some others. Okay, a few of you. If, if confession is synonymous with belief, then pray tell me how we interpret John 12:42 and 43. Take a look. Nevertheless, Jesus, uh, John, uh, John comments, he's, he's summarizing about Jesus' ministry. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in Christ, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess Him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praises of men more than the praise of God. You see, friends, if, if confession and belief are one and the same, then how do you possibly make sense of John 12 here? You can't. It's not possible. Clearly, they're distinct. Not only that, but just a few verses after our portion in Romans today, we find a very peculiar statement by Paul. He writes this in verses 13 to 15. He says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Now, Bible scholars are widely agreed that confessing Christ in verses 9 and 10 is the same as calling on the Lord in verses 13 and 14. Synonyms. Both refer to the mouth, both assume the making of a public declaration, and both result in salvation. So again, we agree that confession and calling on the name of the Lord are synonyms. But we can't agree that confession and belief are synonyms. If that were the case, then verse 14 would read, How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not called? That doesn't make any sense. Clearly, confession and belief are distinct. But notice one final issue. Did you notice in verse 14 that Paul indicates that a person cannot even so much as call upon the Lord until he has first believed? Notice. Notice carefully. Verse 14. A person is not even able to call to confess Christ. They're not even able to cry out to Christ unless they have first believed. I've got an arrow pointing up here that indicates what I'm talking about here. This, this passage needs to be read from the, from the reverse here. First, you're sent at the bottom. And then you preach. 
And as you preach, some people hear. And as some people hear, some people believe. And as some people believe, they're able to call. And as they call, they get saved. But you can't get saved until you confess. And you can't confess until you believe. And you can't believe until you hear. And you can't hear until someone preaches to you. And you can't have someone preach to you unless they're sent to you. Do you see the flow here? Do you see the, the logical connection between all these words? Calling and believing are not the same thing. Confessing and believing are not the same thing. In fact, believing precedes confessing Christ. You say, well, wait a minute, Neil. Wait a minute. I thought Paul just said in verses 10 and 13 that confession is required for salvation. Right? Right? Confession is required for salvation. But Neil, in, in verse 14, Paul says you can't even confess Christ until you believed in Him. Yeah, I see your point. That's kind of perplexing, isn't it? In order to be saved, you must confess but you can't even confess until you believed. So, how does that work? How does this work? I'm so confused. I don't know. Let's go home. Now, no, we can get through this. You see, friends, our confusion here is totally and utterly based on a huge huge, faulty assumption that many, many believers make as they read Romans 10, 9, and 10. I want to go back to the, the list of the, the four faulty interpretations. I have a question for you. What is the one thing, the one thing all four of these interpretations have in common? Can anybody see it? What is the one thing? Who's, who said that? Jack and John. John. Nice job. Justification. The one thing all four of these passages have in common is that they believe Paul is speaking about justification. On your outline, they assume the word salvation in Romans 10, 9, and 10 is equivalent to justification. But this assumption, I argue strongly, is totally unwarranted. It is totally unwarranted. They assume the word salvation in Romans 10, 9, and 10 is equivalent to justification, but that assumption is totally unwarranted. I do not assume that. And there are a great many reasons why I do not assume that. Let's look at a few of them. First, Romans 5, 9, and 10. In Romans 5, 9, and 10, Paul's drawing a contrast between two terms. See if you notice what they are. Much more than having now been justified, past tense, by His blood, we shall be saved, future tense, from wrath through Him. Verse 10. For if, we were, for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, past tense, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved, future tense, by His life. If it's not clear... Paul is here making a noticeable distinction between justification and salvation in his epistle to the Romans. Again, on your outline. Paul's making 
a noticeable distinction between justification and salvation in his epistle to the Romans. He does not use these words interchangeably. In fact, I would argue that nowhere in Romans does he use these words interchangeably. He always keeps them separate. Justification is always viewed as a past event in which you believed in Christ, received eternal life, received the righteousness of God, ready for heaven, justified. And yet salvation is always viewed as something that's either happening now in the sanctifying process or is happening future many days from now. Be it deliverance or glorification. This is one very clear instance in Romans where Paul separates these two terms. What is more, if you were to turn, if you were to do a complete study of Romans 3 and 4, chapters 3 and 4, you would find in those chapters, as we've, as we've learned, Paul's greatest treatise on justification. Romans 3 and 4 is the, the pinnacle of Paul's teaching on justification. But did you know that the Greek words saved and salvation. Do you know how many times those two words were used in Romans 3 and 4 in Paul's great pinnacle treatise on justification? How many times do you suppose he used the term save or salvation in those chapters? Zero. Zero. On your outline. Not once did Paul use the term save or salvation to refer to justification. Not once. How crazy is that? Paul's telling us something. He's, he's implicitly teaching us something. Paul makes a noticeable distinction between justification and salvation. And here we are, we come to our present text. Romans 10, 9 and 10. And in our present text, we also see a distinction, don't we? Take a look at particularly at verse 10. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Well, what is unique about the term righteousness here? is the term righteousness is invariably and repeatedly tied to the concept of justification by faith. That same word righteousness occurs an innumerable amount of times in Romans 3 and 4 where Paul talks about justification. So what Paul's saying in verse 10 here is with the heart one believes and is justified. That's why some of your Bibles say just that. The NIV reads and is justified. The ESV reads, and is justified by the belief in the heart. But with the mouth, and the Greek word and there is actually the Greek, uh, uh, the Greek word day, which is a mild uh, contrast. It should be a but there. But with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Something different. Something different is happening. It's not justification. It's something else. What is it? That's, that's really the question of the hour here. What does Paul mean by salvation in Romans 10, 9, and 10? What does he mean by it? Well, in order to, to get a picture of this, we need to jump back a little bit to the context surrounding our present verses. Take a look at what Paul says about salvation just not even ten verses earlier in Romans chapter 9. He writes, 
Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he, God, will finish the work of tribulation and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. That is to say, we would have, been, we would have perished in judgment. Now, who is Paul addressing in Romans 9? He's addressing the Jews. We've, we've, we've known that. In fact, he, he's really, his primary audience is the Jews in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So whatever you're reading in Romans 9, 10, and 11, you always need to think, how does this apply to Israel? Including the verses we're looking at today. How does this apply to Israel? And what has Paul been teaching about Israel up until this point? Well, he said that, that they're a disobedient and contrary people. He said that they've stumbled or collided at the notion that Jesus is Messiah. He said that they were once a vessel of mercy, but have become presently a vessel of wrath. And he says that Israel is presently experiencing a temporal hardening, that God has temporarily blinded them from the truth. These are things that, that Paul teaches in Romans 9, 10, and 11. But Paul also teaches that God has not given up on Israel. And here in our passage, right here in Romans 9, we see that God will again show mercy to Israel, particularly during the end times. And so we read in verse 27 that the remnant of Israel will be saved. What kind of salvation is this? Well, the context of Romans 9 provides the answer. The remnant of the Jews will be saved from the wrath of God. The wrath of God that is coming upon the nations particularly during the tribulation period. You see, Isaiah, he's quoting Isaiah here. And the allusion is to the great tribulation. It's implied greatly. God will cut short the work. He, verse 28, He will finish the work and cut it short. What's He going to cut short? The work of tribulation. He will show mercy again upon Israel. He will cut short the time of the great tribulation. And He will respond to Israel and save her. They will not perish. They will be delivered. They will be protected from God's wrath. They will be saved to the uttermost. The word saved here in Romans 9.27 is not merely is not merely Isaiah or Paul's way of saying, boy, Israel's going to be justified. That's simply too reductionistic here. It goes so much further than justification. It is a much more comprehensive view of salvation. One that includes justification, but goes on to speak of God sheltering Israel, protecting Israel, delivering Israel from the wrath to come. A few verses later, in chapter 10, verse 1, Paul writes, "...My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved." And the definition of saved here is, again, naturally contingent on, on what we've just read in Romans 9. It is only three verses apart. We would do well to look back at the use of saved in Romans 9.27 and apply it here to Romans 10.1. Paul, Paul is not merely hoping, God, please justify the Jews. No. So much more than that. All of Romans 9 speaks and attests to it. Paul is pleading with God to save Israel, 
to deliver her, to protect her, to shelter her, to cut short the work of tribulation that she might be preserved. And then just a few verses later, he says the word saved again in Romans 10, 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. What does that mean? For with the heart one believes unto righteousness or justification, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Friends, once again, we see here plainly that confession is necessary for salvation. And yet we know definitively that confession cannot be a requirement for justification. We know that we are justified by faith and faith alone. So what is this salvation? What is the interpretation of Romans 10, 9, and 10? I submit it is this. In light, in light of the clear, immediate context and definition of salvation in Romans 9.27, in Romans 10.1, and in Romans 5.9 and 10, salvation in Romans 10.9 and 10 is understood as deliverance from God's wrath. If a person confesses, that is, that they publicly appeal to Christ, if, they, if a person confesses the Lord Jesus believing Him to be resurrected or alive and therefore capable of offering them assistance, such a person will be saved. That is to say, they will be delivered from the wrath of God. If a person confesses, publicly appealing to the Lord Jesus Christ, believing Him to be resurrected, alive, and therefore capable, able to provide assistance to them, such a person will be saved, that is, delivered from the wrath of God. Now, this interpretation um, has many strengths to it. Uh, number one, it defines key words like confession and salvation in a very straightforward and contextually sound manner. Number two, it, it keeps Paul's primary audience, the Jews, in focus, which is what they are throughout chapters 9, 10, and 11. So how many times have you read Romans 10, 9, and 10 and not even thought about the Jewish application of it? We read these verses and we immediately just rip them out of their historical context and we use them as, as, a, as a little proof text to get people into heaven. It, it is so much more than that. We always need to read Romans 9, 10, 11 with a view to the Jew. What is Paul saying to the Jew here, to Israel? Thirdly, it recognizes, this interpretation recognizes Paul's painstaking efforts to differentiate justification from salvation. He does it time and again in Romans. Paul never uses these words interchangeably. He always keeps them separate. Always. Always in the book of Romans. Fourth, this interpretation prevents public confession from becoming a second condition for justification. Friends, that cannot be. 
a condition for justification. If it were, it would be the only mentioning of it in all of Scripture. You wouldn't be able to get saved by reading the Gospel of John. You wouldn't be able to get saved by reading Jesus' words. You would have to go only and finally to Romans 10, 9, and 10 to know what it takes to be justified. And that's, that doesn't sit well. That doesn't sit well with my spirit. That, that leads me to reject public confession as a requirement for justification. And to embrace what is mentioned from Genesis to Revelation, that faith and faith alone is the condition for justification. Fifth, it preserves the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And sixth, it is confirmed. And this is important, friends. Many of you might be looking now and you might be thinking, I don't know. I don't know about this reading of Romans 10, 9, and 10. Pay attention to this last point. Here is where I find its, its greatest support. It is confirmed by the prophets and by Jesus Himself. Just a few verses after Romans 10, 9, and 10, Paul writes in verse 13, he writes, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it's interesting that he uses this verse because it's, he pulls it from the prophet Joel in chapter 2.32 in which Joel writes, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be what? Deliverance. As the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Friends, if you were to read the entire context of Joel 2, you would find that it pertains utterly and totally to the last days, to the end times, when Israel is at wit's end and is looking up to God and crying out for help, for deliverance, for protection. Paul uses Joel 2.32 particularly because it perfectly aligns with what he is trying to communicate. That salvation here is so much more than justification. It is deliverance from the wrath of God that is coming upon the earth, particularly in the Great Tribulation. It is not coincidental that he uses Joel 2.32. And Jesus, Jesus confirms that Israel will in fact one day call upon His name for salvation deliverance. Luke 13.35, Jesus writes, Assuredly I say to you, Israel, you shall not see Me again until the time comes when you say, confess, call, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus confirmed as Joel before him, as Paul after him, that there is coming a day when Israel will call, they will confess, they will cry out to God. And on that day, Israel will come to realize that Jesus is the Lord, that He was and is the long-awaited for Messiah, that those who once mocked His death, look at Romans 10.7, those who once mocked His death and saying, oh, He's still in the grave. They will, on the last day, come to believe that God has indeed raised Jesus from the dead and knowing their Messiah to be alive and to be well, to be fully capable of helping them, they will confess the Lord Jesus. They will call upon His name 
for help in their darkest hour. And when they do, when they confess Christ, when they call upon Him, when Israel declares, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus will come again. And He will cut short the work of God's wrath during the Great Tribulation, just as Paul says in Romans 9.28. When Israel confesses Jesus as their Lord, He will come again to definitively and to finally deliver the chosen remnant of Israel. He will vanquish the enemies of God in His wrath and He will deliver Israel from that wrath. Make no mistake, friends. The salvation of Romans 10, 9, and 10 is not merely salvation from hell. It cannot be that. It is a very real, a very this-worldly kind of deliverance. It is a message of deliverance that is especially localized in the people of the Jews. Especially localized in the time of the Great Tribulation. But what is more, what is more, is that Paul goes on to declare that God will in fact deliver anyone, anyone who calls upon His name for help. We finish with verses 11-13. to 13. For the Scripture says, whoever, whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Friends, the salvation deliverance offered to Israel is also extended to you and to me. To anyone who is willing to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ for help in time of trouble. In order to obtain Christ's help, what must we do? We must believe in Him. We must believe that He is risen. That is, that He is alive and ready and willing and capable to help us. Secondly, we must confess Him. We must call upon Him. We must ask Him. We must implore Him to deliver us to protect us, to save us. And when these two conditions obtain, when we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. We shall be delivered. We shall be protected. We shall be preserved. Now, I don't pretend to know the exact nature of God's deliverance. I don't pretend to know precisely how He might offer me assistance at any given moment that I ask Him for it. But I do know this assuredly. When I call on Christ for help, I will be helped. When I call on Christ for help, I will be helped. For the Bible tells me that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, shall be delivered. Sometimes we, we, we think, this isn't deliverance. This isn't help. This isn't assistance. We look at our life circumstances and we've been crying out for help, for deliverance, for protection. And we look upon what's happened and we think... I, this doesn't match what I thought was God's aid to me. 
friends, I assure you, if you're believing Christ, He's alive and well, capable of helping you, and if you call upon Him for help, you will be helped. You will be helped. Just as Israel will be helped on the last day. We began this time together in verse 8, considering the notion that that the Word is near us, near us in our mouth and in our heart. And now we see just how near God's deliverance is. It is so close to you that all you have to do is call upon Him for it. It is so near to us that all we have to do is look heavenward and say, Jesus Christ, help me. Help me. It is near us. It is readily accessible. It is right at the gate. And so together, alongside Israel, we can declare, in accordance with Deuteronomy 4.7, for what great nation is there that, God, that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon Him. Ask Jesus for help, friends. Ask Him for help. And you will have it. I know you will have it because I've seen it. I see it in Glenn. I see it in Fred Koblenz who's come through surgery. We're seeing it through Debbie and through Luis and through so many others who are being brought through times of difficulty, times of hardship, times of trial. And God is delivering. He is saving. He is protecting. He is preserving. Why? Because this church is calling Him for it. We are imploring, imploring Him for it. We will not stop asking Him for it. I see it when Tony and Michael come home from Afghanistan. I see it when God protects our men and women in uniform and around the world. When we call upon Him, when we confess Him, we have aid. The question is, will you depend upon Him for it? I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my supplications. Because He has inclined His ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon Him as long as I live. The pains of death, they surround me. The pains of Sheol lay hold of me. I found trouble and I found sorrow. But then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore You, deliver my soul. May this be our prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we will call upon You. For we know that whoever calls upon You shall be saved. God, You are great and mighty. And You love Your people. And You love when we ask You for help. When we appeal to You for help. Father, we know that 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 appeal, that that confession, we know that it doesn't determine our eternal destiny. We know that that is secure by our faith and by our faith alone. But Lord, we want to be a people who go so much further than justification. We want to be a people who confesses You who seeks You out, who seeks Your aid and are helped thereby. God, may we not be ashamed. 
May we not be timid. May we not be shy to call upon You for help. May we do it with the lowest of needs and with the highest of needs. With the simplest of troubles and with the greatest of hardships. May we be a community that calls upon You. For we know that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.